Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. A lot has happened in the last month, so this is going to be a bit of a long introduction. I spoke to this episode's guest, John Lee Anderson of The New Yorker, under weird circumstances. I was scrambling to leave the next day to cover the disappearance of the British journalist Dom Phillips and the Brazilian indigenous advocate Bruno Pereira in the Amazon rainforest. I really felt out of my depths, rushing into a part of the Amazon I didn't know, with woefully inadequate experience reporting on indigenous issues and a very emotionally charged story for journalists about one of our own, Dom Phillips. My colleagues in the media and I traveled there only to eventually learn that the worst had happened and that Dom and Bruno had been murdered for their association with the indigenous patrol group that they had been accompanying. John Lee gave me the advice that if a story affects me personally, I shouldn't pretend like it doesn't and that I should let it inform my work. Now then, I work for Reuters, where we stick to just the facts, and that isn't exactly possible. So I feel compelled to say a few more words here about Dom. I hesitate to talk about it because my instinct as a journalist is to keep myself out of the story. But if the situation were reversed, I wouldn't want people to speak about me. So here goes. Dom Phillips was a crushingly nice person. Really, I look back at the messages we exchanged, and I can't believe that I ever forgot some of the things he told me. He was a major supporter of my environmental reporting and told me in our first exchange that he was the president of the Jake Spring fan club. Seriously, he was just that drippingly nice. That meant a lot to me coming from a reporter who was more than a decade older, and also because he was one of a short list of people doing really good environmental reporting in Brazil. It really pains me that I did not get to know Dom better, and that we only ever talked online. I would have loved to pick his brain about environmental journalism at a corner bar and hear more about his amazing life. I had no clue that he had previously been a music journalist and reported on the birth of rave culture in the UK, a period that I am fascinated by and would have loved to live through. As for his death, I'm deeply disturbed by Dom's murder. Bruno Pereira's murder was equally horrible, but I at least have better been able to come to terms with the facts of his case. Pereira had worked in the Javari Valley Indigenous Territory for more than a decade. When President Jair Bolsonaro came to power and Pereira found it impossible to do his job within the government, he left to help mount an Indigenous patrol team to help the tribes to police their own territory. That put him in direct conflict with poachers and illegal fishermen, which would ultimately lead to his death. Dom, meanwhile, did not have deep connections to the Javari region. While the indigenous could tell lengthy stories about their connection with Bruno, they barely knew who Dom was. He made decisions any journalist would have made easily, without thinking it was dangerous. His trip was short, only a few days, following the rule that you should get in and get out before anyone has much time to take issue with your presence. He was with Pereira, an expert guide, which if anything would make me feel safer on a trip. While the fishermen who confessed to the killings threatened the indigenous patrol team a day earlier, Bruno and Dom were not present at the time. The fishermen only spotted Bruno later, so really Dom had no warning of what was to come. In the end, he was killed because he was with Bruno, who had these long-running connections to the region and to the patrol team. I have little doubt in my mind that Dom had no clue what was happening until his final moments. That Dom's seemingly safe decisions would lead to such a terrible end Cutting the life short of a good person 
is really difficult for me to come to grips with and what it means for my reporting going forward. I haven't really processed. But that shouldn't affect how he's remembered. He was a damn good foreign correspondent and person. My condolences to his friends, family, and close colleagues. On that heavy note, let's now turn to the conversation with John Lee Anderson, a longtime writer for The New Yorker, who has also written a slew of books. Most famously, he has written a definitive biography of the revolutionary Che Guevara. John Lee has reported on his share of dangerous situations. Early on in his career, he spent time with many different guerrilla groups as he tried to understand what drives them, how they create their own cultures and mythologies, and ultimately shape the society around them. His focus on insurgencies ultimately led him to document the life of Che that, as he'll tell in this interview, got him noticed by the likes of Hugo Chavez and Barack Obama. His literary chops led him to The New Yorker, where he's chronicled leaders and events from Latin America to Asia over the past 25 years. There are many more experiences than could possibly fit in a podcast, and he'll tell us about memorable moments sitting with presidents and some of recent history's most influential people. John Lee admits that he is a long-form person in all respects, writing long and taking his time. So it's appropriate that I had too much good material for this episode, and we'll have to break out a bonus episode, which I'll post in the next 24 hours. I just couldn't bear to leave it on the cutting room floor. In that bonus content, John Lee will share his thoughts on why democracy has largely failed in Latin America, as well as taking us inside what it's like to work at The New Yorker, a truly unique publication. Definitely check it out after you've listened to this main interview. Well, enough of me talking. Without further ado, here's my conversation with John Lee Anderson, an author and staff writer at The New Yorker. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, John. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. To start, if you could just warm up by setting the scene for us, if you could tell us where you are geographically, a little bit about the space around you, and also what your past week of work has been like. Sure. Well, I'm home in uh, Dorset, England, where I live. I've lived for the past 20 years. It's something like my eyrie in the world. I never write about Dorset or England, for that matter. Um, And I've returned home uh, a few days ago after being away for a month, catching up with uh, uh, people, contacts, friends and family in the U.S., and a few days in Spain where I had some public talks to give. And so I'm catching up with myself, my family, my dogs, and my friends here in the little town of Bridport, England, uh, before I head off again, this time for a reporting assignment, probably to Ethiopia. It has yet to be confirmed. I'm working on the details. If not, it'll be somewhere else. But on a short list of assignments, I've either been hounding my editors about for some time or which they've proposed. So we'll see which one comes to the fore. And it's, at the moment, it's the onset of summer, but you know, British summers, some days feel like weathering heights. And it can happen 20 times in a day. You'll go out thinking it's going to be sunny and rain appears. And it's, look, today looks like one of those days, off and on. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, a big point of the podcast is for people to learn how you got to where you are today. And I like to start way back at the beginning. 
and uh, you don't sound particularly British. Uh, so if you could just tell us sure. where you were born, where you're from, and a little bit about uh, your early years. For sure, yes. Um, so I am American. I was born in California, in Long Beach, precisely. Uh, I didn't grow up in the U.S. We lived in California until I was two. And my father, who was a foreign service officer, an agriculture specialist, hmm. and my mother, who wrote children's books, um, had come back to the U.S. after my father had quit a job in El Salvador. He thought he'd gone there to help peasants in an agrarian reform program, but found himself assigned to one of the country's oligarchic families, so he quit, which is why I was born in California and not El Salvador. And prior to that, they'd been in Haiti and Trinidad. In Haiti, my oldest sister had been born. My father had, you know, as I explained, quit the government, bought a little farm in Northern California and thought he would become a farmer. And my younger brother was born as well in California. But then my father was lured back into government. And when I was two, and my brother was two months old, and my eldest sister, Michelle, was uh, four, or rather six, um, we went to Korea. And um, anyway, a long way of saying that I spent my growing up years in a number of different countries, eight to be exact. Wow. With only two of those years being back in the United States, uh, from Korea to Colombia to Taiwan, Indonesia. When I was 13, I went to live with an uncle in Liberia, my uncle who's a geologist and spent a year in Africa. Hmm. And later we moved to England, by then I was 15, where my family sort of broke up and I stayed on in England, thus my connection here for an extra year. And um, I ended up then in, in Honduras with an uncle, where I really learned my Spanish on the Mosquito Coast and was spent, you know, the better part of a year in Central America before my family kind of forced me to go to a college. <laughs> uh, that was where my mother was living at the time, in Gainesville, Florida, where she taught children's literature. And, and then after a year and a half, I left to lead expeditions in South America and didn't come back. Um, so I eventually fell into journalism knowing that I wanted to write, there were, I think, two impulses driving me as a young guy. Mm -hmm. One was an instinct to be creative and to write in some way. It wasn't necessarily going to be journalism. I tried my hand at, I think, like a lot of young people, at poetry and then short stories. And to the other desire was to be a witness to history, the history of my time. I was always yearning to be where history was being made. And so I got my first job in journalism in Peru when I was 20 at a little English language weekly called the Lima Times. It was one of Latin America's oldest papers in English. And I, I got my start there before ending up in Central America, where, you know, quote-unquote, history was being made in the very early 80s um, following the Sandinista Revolution at a time of Cold War brinksmanship in the hot wars in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. And, and there I began working as a stringer for Time magazine and also for a columnist in Washington. 
where I did a stint. Uh, Jack Anderson, no connection, but, <laughs> you know, other than the name. And, you know, I've never really looked back since then. That's, that's how I got my start. I, it was not through, you know, J school. It was a combination of instinct, desire to be, I guess you could say where the action is, not necessarily war, but it became that a sense that I needed to be creative and write. And I think also a strong a need to make sense out of the life I'd lived until that point, which was, as I say, a, a life as an American boy being raised everywhere but in the United States. And so learning to see my country through the eyes of others. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, that lays out pretty clearly your interest in international affairs um, going way back. And uh, so you were in Lima working for that newspaper, and you head out to El Salvador, you said? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask, like, I mean, obviously, by that point, you had grown comfortable moving between countries and things like that. But this is before, you know, things were so interconnected. And I was just wondering if you just heard something was going on there, that's where the action was, and you just showed up and figured it out? When I was in Peru, it was an interesting time there. Peru has always been something of a backwater, and I was more interested in Peru as a place that, you know, a desert, jungle, Andes, as a kind of unexplored land than for its politics. In, in retrospect, really, you could say it was interesting. It was just emerging from a 12-year military dictatorship, and I saw that. That in itself was interesting, but right around that time, we're talking right at the end of the 70s, very early 80s, Central America blew up. There was the Sandinista Revolution against the Somoza family dictatorship in 1979. The Sandinista rebels were charismatic, Cuban-backed, left-wing, and the whole region where there had been, you know, burbling guerrilla wars since the 60s, backed by Cuba uh, without definition. And countries usually ruled by military, right-wing military dictatorships. It just, you know, as a result of the Sandinista revolution, things erupted. The Sandinistas helped support Salvadoran kindred guerrillas in neighboring El Salvador and in Guatemala, also, there was a, you know, a, a kind of long-standing insurgency that had percolated along ever since the 1950s when the United States had overthrown a socialist government. So the region was ripe. It was a tinder keg, as they say, and it was ripe for revolution, and it erupted. And it became, in the perceptions of, of the Reagan administration, which, as you'll recall, came to power in 1981, on the heels of the Carter years where American influence around the world was seen to have waned. So Reagan comes in as an arch, with an arch-conservative administration, determined to hold back the communist tide and define Central America and these communist revolutionaries, some of whom had already been successful in Nicaragua and those who were coming close to being successful in El Salvador, to a lesser extent, Guatemala, as an imminent national security threat to the United States. And so it became the Libya or the, the Iraq or the U Ukraine of its day, the Central America, 
Americans would look at their nightly news and they would see their president pointing to little El Salvador, explaining to them how communists could reach our borders within, you know, almost no time. And for that reason, the country needed our military assistance and so forth. So it became one of those ground zeros in the world in which suddenly the cameras were trained on, particularly El Salvador, and hundreds of journalists would go there for elections or any other major event that happened. Suddenly it was on the nightly news every day. So the region was in ferment. There was a counter-narrative to the Reagan, one which was coming from the left, coming from the idea that the United States was an imperialist power, evil empire, that it supported military dictators who had death squads that regularly murdered people, not necessarily communists, but anyone reform-minded or liberal, which was also, certainly the last part of that was an absolute truth. So for my generation of young journalists, Central America, El Salvador in particular, and Nicaragua was a place that was an obligatory place to go to and to see for oneself. This was highly controversial, highly polemical. It was, one has to remember, just a few years after the withdrawal from Vietnam. So you had an American military that felt it needed to prove itself again feeling that it had been defeated and a military and intelligence establishment really that had fought and lost in Southeast Asia and then kind of licked its paws and its wounds for several years. And now in Central America under a new ambitious and aggressive, aggressively anti-communist president was saying that here in Central America, we can win the war. We can win the war against communism. Here they are again. We need to stop them. And on the other hand, you had a people much closer in spirit and culture to Americans. I'm speaking now about Latin Americans with, you know, their own discourses, their own arguments. And sometimes representatives in the United States and circles, sympathetic circles, intellectuals, teachers, politicians who were saying, they're right, it's America that's wrong. Uh, we need to listen to them and we need to find a common ground. And so it was a very disputatious territory. You had the media that was also polarized between the sort of the mainstream papers that held themselves to this idea that you would be objective somehow as a reporter in a region where your government was intervening. And a new generation of sort of post-Watergate, post-Nixon, post-Milai massacre young Americans who were very skeptical, not to say suspicious, about their own government, their own military, and their intentions in a foreign battlefield. So it was really the first time, maybe in history, that this had happened. You had people like myself. I was somewhere, I was skeptical and disbelieving of the American establishment, but nonetheless, I wanted to adhere to principles of at least fairness in my reporting. And yet I was working for a very mainstream publication. So as a young journalist learning the craft in the field, in a hot battlefield, really, one had to juggle all of these sometimes opposing concerns and issues. So it made for, I think, a unique generation that first, and I have to say, very forgotten post 
Vietnam generation, Central America, for those reasons, because it was so polemical. And I think for the first time you had Americans in a foreign battlefield essentially trying to find out what transgressions the American government was doing in those places. And of course, you had American newsmen, newswomen, who were uncritically following whatever Washington said. And so it was a pretty toxic or at least heady kind of soup. And when I say forgotten, I just want to kind of fast forward briefly to say that, you know, one has to keep in mind that at the end of that decade, the Cold War ended precipitously, unexpectedly. And uh, I'm speaking of the 80s. And, you know, Central America was quickly, instantly forgotten, almost until the Trump years. And it had to do with immigration, narco-trafficking. From being number one on the national security agenda, it became number 164. It right. was immediately replaced upon the crumbling of the Soviet Union and its and communism by the first Gulf War and so and then everything that ha- has happened since. The pivot went to Central Asia, to the Middle East. And so those of us who did find ourselves in Central America in the early 80s as our proving ground have, in, in a sense never really had a chance to exercise it, I would say. It's it's a pretty interesting one. I mean, it must come up a fair bit. I mean, knowing all this, having covered it, and the stuff you write now for The New Yorker, I mean, it must still be useful. I mean, in your pieces, I'm always surprised. I went back and read something from 2008 to see, like, Petro mentioned in there, and now he's going to be president. I imagine all of their kind of through lines, are there still... There are many through lines, sure. And I'm fortunate that I work for a publication like The New Yorker that allows me to delve back into history and find the historical threads that are relevant that provide those through lines through to today. I don't know that it's the same with daily publications. And I think in general, I would say that you know, those of my friends who are around who, like me, worked in Central America in the 80s and covered that really dramatic period there. I think everybody shares the feeling that I just spoke about, this idea that it was left on a shelf, forgotten, neglected. There's a truism to the idea that editors tend to follow the diktat of the White House. It's an intentional critique, but it's also a fact of life. If if a part of the world ceases to be quote-unquote, sexy to the news editors, you, you can almost then look and see that, oh, okay, it's because uh, they're no longer saying it's important from the White House. And so places just begin to fall away. I mean, it happened in Afghanistan after the Soviet pullout in the end of the 80s. We didn't rediscover Afghanistan until after 9-11. With the exception of a handful of narratives over the preceding 12 years, published in the odd American publication, it was no longer covered, just as they had also closed down the CIA station in the region and pulled out the diplomats. So, you know, we see this again and again and again, a kind of inattention, the superpowers inattention wanes, it moves somewhere else, and so do the journalists. And the journalists, of course, cannot be blamed necessarily for themselves, it has to do with what their editors, what the you know publishers believe 
the public wants to hear and know. And, you know, you follow the money, essentially. So that's, that's a rather cynical capsule version of what I think dictates a lot of the news trends. And I'm talking about the pre-internet age, but I think the same holds true quite a bit today. So, again, while I'm able at The New Yorker to go back to history to make sense of today, I think for a lot of the intervening years from the 80s through to the present day in which immigration became an issue because of Donald Trump, essentially, and through the immigration issue, we have rediscovered a Central America that's now a series of failed states with huge inequalities, endemic poverty and corruption, a wasteland of narco-trafficking, gangs, and lo and behold, is, is there a connection? Yes, there's a connection. <laughs> the civil wars were ended with pacts of impunity in which, by and large, everyone got off scot-free, no matter how many people they'd murdered. It remained a region awash in weapons. The outflow of immigrants, of people fleeing the violence through those years, uh, had come to the United States. Their children joined American gangs and returned, bringing new networks of uh, criminal networks with them. And then, while the, our State Department oversaw periodic elections and declared the region now to be democratic, you know, it was largely symbolic. You had alternating presidents in countries where, by and large, were you know, immensely corrupt, in which institutions were not built, civil society was squashed, and corruption prevailed. I mean, a case in point, the last president of Honduras, who stepped down earlier this year, was recently extradited to the United States in chains, accused of narco-trafficking. He was known to be a narco-trafficker while he was in power. It was one of my sort of one story before the last one. I, I went to Honduras and wrote about it. Everybody knew it. He was an American ally. Half of the American government wanted to see him extradited. The other half wanted him in place because he was seen as a somehow as an ally in the immigration wars you would hold, you know. And uh, in the end, when he stepped down, his immunity lapsed and he was extradited. So there's a kind of cynical transactionalism th that's come to replace the kind of heady rhetoric of democracy and human rights that once drove our politics in the region. And that's also part of the Central America story. Mm -hmm. but there's no question that the violence of 40 years ago has everything to do with the way it is today. Right. And just to go back to the chronology, uh, I'm wondering about Time magazine. I mean, it was the sort of thing where did you just call them up? And since it was a hot story, they said, yeah, go for it, string for us. And at the end of that, did you move on or did Time Magazine move on and they just weren't interested in stories from Central America anymore? I'm trying to remember how I got the job. I was in Washington. I had come to Washington after Peru, you know, and I was working as a very underpaid young reporter for Jack Anderson, convincing him to send me down to Central America or Suriname or Grenada, various other spots. Usually I would try to make contact with guerrilla groups or death squad members and and I would write these lurid dispatches under his name uh, with some kind of name credit in his column. Oh, wow. And he would, you know, allow me to go, go down there, you know, on a shoestring. And, of course, you know, I, I quickly felt as though I was out 
living, working for Jack. He had a small team of reporters. It was very much subsumed by his personality. He turned out to be quite a bit more conservative than I had realized. But it was a good, nonetheless, a good proving ground. So I was looking around for a some kind of a publication that would allow me to move to Central America and be there. I didn't want to come and go. And I heard, I guess, through the grapevine that there was a need for a stringer in El Salvador. I guess the previous one had left. I wrote or called the bureau chief in Mexico City. And he essentially said, come on down. So that's what I did. And I worked that into a fairly robust sinecure and found myself, because of my previous reporting over the previous couple of years, uh, they allowed me to roam. And because I had contacts now amongst Contras, guerrillas, various people, and I found myself roaming the region, but based in El Salvador and for a while also based in neighboring Honduras over a period of three or four years. We were all in our early, mid or late 20s. I was in my mid-20s. There were a lot of other youngsters down there. And, the, you know, everybody was, that was American anyway, was, was trying to get a job as a, a staff reporter. And the way it worked with the Times or the Post or the, or pretty much any of them, but particularly the, the kind of biggies were the New York Times and the Washington Post. And in those days, Time and Newsweek, which were, you know, rival publications, were very, very desirable destinations for journalists. And the idea was from a stringer, you really wanted to be a staff because it meant you had a proper job, you received a salary. Usually they would bring you up to wherever it was, head office, and try to kind of turn you into one of their apparatchiks for a couple of years. You knew that you would have to do time on the metro desk or whatever it was, and that then you'd be sent out again. If you were lucky and ambitious and good, you'd end up in Beirut or New Delhi or Nairobi or wherever it is you wanted to go. And that was kind of the path. And so every few months, I had a bureau chief who was a really kind of a great guy, sort of an Irish-American, not at all really a time guy, more of a kind of south side of Chicago guy. And he liked me. (laughs) And every so often he would say, Johnny, we got to get you up to New York. You should go up and meet the you know, chief of correspondence. And you got a suit, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and he would kind of egg me on and send me up there, make me appointments with the luminaries of the organization. I would arrive at feel completely out of my depth mm-hmm. and sort of wondering inwardly what the hell I was doing there. I, you know, as time went on, I felt very much at odds, in fact, with time. Uh, with its general editorial line, I felt increasingly frustrated by the fact that what I saw as the stories were undercovered or uncovered, that they sort of, they would send down what they wanted. And it tended to, to hew to quite a political line that, well, that hewed very closely to the Reagan administration. So, I mean, a, a case in point, the darling of the press corps amongst the Salvador military were generally hostile to the press when I was there, was a man called Lieutenant Colonel Domingo Monterrosa, who, it was known by everyone, had carried out the single largest massacre in modern history, not just in El Salvador, but in the region, in, you know, in the hemisphere, of a thousand people over a three-day period in 1981. 
And yet no one ever questioned him about it. No one ever talked about it. The American, the Reagan administration had not acknowledged it. In fact, had tried to suggest that any reports about that massacre of supposed, you know, civilian sympathizers of the guerrillas, but it included hundreds of women and children, including babies, by U.S. trained troops. It was twice as large as Milai. And nobody talked about it. And I remember seeing this man at press conferences and just being floored by the fact that I was standing in front of a monster. Anyway, I found myself sent on an assignment by time. They wanted me to cover something the Salvadoran military and their U.S. advisors had defined as some kind of, they gave it a name, you know, I forget what it was, just heavenly justice or something. You know, it was one of these counterinsurgency campaigns that supposedly was winning back the hinterland from the rebels. And I spent three days with Monterrosa, this man, on a helicopter-borne mission, which include, you know, included getting shot at and all the rest of it. Anyway, I found myself alone with him, and the only thing I wanted to know from him was, had he done this thing? And I asked him, and he couldn't meet my eyes. And he said, it's not like they say, which I took it as a one a tacit confirmation that it had happened, something still denied by the U.S. Embassy at the time, and two, that he wasn't ready to talk about. Anyway, long story short, the next day he was blown up, killed by a bomb planted aboard his helicopter. I was fortunately not with him wow. then. But um, so the, the secrets, his secrets went to the grave with him. But time was not interested in that story. They wanted the story of his victory sweep through the highlands, not his inner truth. You know, and so the kind of ethical and moral quandaries I began to feel about this kind of journalism that reported along very political lines, I found myself increasingly at odds with. And so I began to, to on the side, wherever I could, really out of a kind of sense of rising kind of ethical tension to freelance stories in provincial American publications, you know, about stories that time just wasn't interested in. And I was also able to write in my own voice in a way that I couldn't at time, where you tended to be rewritten. Any kind of voice was kind of lost. It became time speak. And so you, the trade-off was power. You know, you were powerful working for time. Your things were read at very high levels, quoted in the UN or by White House spokesmen and that kind of thing. On the other hand, you were just a cog in the wheel. It was something like working, I think, for the State Department more than anything else. In retrospect, especially, I see it that way. And so I don't know whether I would have eventually been hired as a staff writer. I kept most of these thoughts to myself. But I, um, they rented a house for me. They bought me a Jeep after I was ambushed and my own car got ruined and I was allowed to travel the region, and I think I was in a kind of category of my own in a way, but I never really wanted to work for time. And the fortuitous shift in career came from my brother, Scott, who's also a journalist two years younger than me, who at the time was working as a waiter and bartender in Washington, but writing precocious novels. And when, after I had written a series about death squads, this actually had come during my time with Jack Anderson. He had sort of concocted a fictional account that he 
based on my reporting that he presented to a publisher in New York who was kind of mentoring him as a novel, basis for novel, and the publisher sort of intuitively sensed this was based on something real. And, and when Scott admitted that it was, he then said, well, look, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an advance for that book, non-fiction book, but not the novel. <laughs> so my brother Scott then called me one day in Salvador and said, John, we have a book contract. <laughs> <laughs> and so our first book we did together, we kind of figured out how to divvy up the work. And it became this book called Inside the League, which was a kind of expose of right-wing terror networks based somehow on my reporting in Central America. When that was done, that same publisher asked us, would we like to write another book? And this coincided with me being sort of two and a half years into this with time in Central America, kind of rising feeling of, as I say, frustration or discontent. And a publisher offering us a new advance and contract to write a second book. And so I threw it all up for a really a paltry advance. I told my wife that I was leaving <laughs> and to wait for me. I uh, left uh, the palatial house with swimming pool that time had rented for me in San Salvador. And the the land cruiser and the job prospects. And I went off with my brother for a year to write a book about conflicts around the world. We wrote an oral history of five different conflicts around the world by talking to people on either side of each conflict. And that's what we did. At some point, my then young, very young wife, we didn't have kids, uh, you know, caught up with me and said, that was it. I'm leaving. And uh, <laughs> I carried on going to war. My brother's girlfriend left him too. But I guess we were kind of saying with our feet what we really wanted, and which was to be out there and explore the world. And I guess having gotten my start in Central America, I I'd had a yearning to see and to make sense of the larger world at the time. It was a world in which there were conflicts all over the world. There were about 40 guerrilla wars taking place. And we chose five of them, either civil conflicts or guerrilla wars, to cover and then my brother decided to go back to fiction write, and write a novel, a new one that had been brewing in him. And I decided to take that trajectory I'd been on and that we'd been on and deepened there in, in that book, War Zones, a step further. And I, I, I got a pretty decent advance from a new publisher. The last one had gone out of business just as our book shipped. Um, uh. And it was one of the old imprints. It was at a time when the behemoths were swallowing up the old publishers. And also, you know, the Barnes & Noble engulf and devour strategy of independent booksellers. It was this thing that happened in the late 80s uh, into the early 90s. A kind of a pre-Bezos-Bezosification of the book world. <laughs> and I spent the next four years going around the world living with different guerrilla groups and writing a book about the world of guerrilla culture, you know, sort of the world of insurgency. And in that time, I did the odd freelance piece. I wrote my first magazine piece ever for Harper's about some militants in Gaza. You know, I worked on a documentary or two. These were mostly to make ends meet at a time when my advance was 
not in the pipeline or, you know, I had no money. But I, ne- I, felt, I never felt happier than in that time when I was finally finding my own voice, following my own muse, exploring the world I was interested in, that I felt was relevant. And it coincided with the, with the breakup of the Soviet Union and communism. All of that was the backdrop, but I was going to these long-running insurgencies where people were sitting in the jungle telling stories that had been accruing for the previous 40 years, mostly unknown to the outside world, and creating their own hybrid armed cultures in insurgency. And that was the world I had become very, very interested in. A thought, a kind of idea that had begun forming in my mind after spending time with them in El Salvador. You know, this idea of who is it that decides to take up a weapon and risk their lives for an idea? Who is this person around the world who does this? What makes them tick? And that was what I set off to do. And that took me to, you know, around 1990, right in that kind of smoky period as the Cold War was ending. Uh, 1992 really was the when the book was published. And as that book wound down, I began thinking about Che Guevara, who was the archetypal figure of that guerrilla era, and became kind of belatedly fascinated by him, but realizing that he was the incarnation of all of those people I'd been spending time with. Not only that, I'd found them venerating him wherever I went, including amongst right-wing or Islamist insurgencies. And I decided that the book about him had never been written. And so... I went on to do that after convincing a publisher in New York that it was a good idea and received what for me at the time was a pretty handsome advance that allowed me to get going on it. So that was my next step. Again, these are journalistic books, but I'm not in journalism. I'm writing modern day history in a sense and occasionally doing the odd freelance article to make ends meet or, you know, a documentary or working on some variation of a documentary in places like Bosnia or Panama and so forth. And yeah, and the Che project took five years, five years of my life in the end. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that, you know, these days nobody would think to, to kind of have the books be the main line or the books be where you start or have be your main journalism work. Everybody thinks of books as like, oh, once your career gets going, you know, maybe then you write a book. Um, whereas, you know, the book really, books were the, the main line of work for you, it sounds like. And uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I hadn't realized, I hadn't put two and two together because Anderson's a common last name that uh, your brother it's your brother who wrote that book, Lawrence in Arabia, right? I'm about That's right. two it thirds is. of the way through yeah. it. It's really great. I mean, I'm, it's taken me a while, but it, it's very good. Um, so uh, interesting. Um, but I mean, do you think it still works like that today? Or and I think or was it common back then that you could like write books because of the industry was I different? Think, no, I think what I did was fairly atypical. You know, I followed my own siren. You know, I I always followed my own cue. I don't think what I did was normal at all. I mean, most of the young colleagues that I, you know, 
was in Central America with, you know, duly became staff writers or eventually editors, in some cases editors and chiefs of all those publications I mentioned before. They followed a, a more or less logical career path. I mean, I remember years later bumping into them in various places. It, you know, it didn't matter really where, Kabul or Baghdad or Nairobi or Islamabad. Or, and uh, in some cases they were, formally speaking, advanced in their careers. They were comfortable, you know, they were, the organizations paid private educations and for their children and then moved them from country to country. Like I say, much like the State Department or UN does. Um, right. And they were successful. In, a, in an interesting number of cases, they rude the fact that they hadn't just followed their own noses because they found themselves sometimes spending two or three years in a part of the world or a place they didn't particularly like or that they found that their journalism had been cluttered by administrative duties because of that career path. And you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. They were, in some cases, I felt sometimes a little bit envious of my freedom. Uh, some even rebuked me for doing dangerous things when I had children because along the way I... When I was doing that gorilla's book, I remet my English childhood sweetheart, and we began a family. So, for you know, many years now, I've been married to her, and that's brought me back to England, where you know I spent those couple of years when I was an adolescent. But I never really had any choice. It's just I've always kind of done what I wanted to do, and if I've suffered for it, I've suffered for it, and I figured that was part of the price I had to pay. I wasn't willing to really do it any other way. I think I thrived off of the insecurity of being a freelancer following my no own nose and that I would have stagnated and become a, a less interesting person and certainly bored myself silly if I'd, <laughs> if I'd you know, become one of those, frankly, one of those apparatchiks at time or one of the others. I've occasionally rude the fact that I didn't have the kind of proving ground of, say, daily experience, which would have been great because I've always written very kind of long and I'm a, I'm a bit of a thumb sucker, I guess, as a writer. But over the course of time, I've come to recognize that I do have, you know, uh, authentic and sound news instincts and also analysis of current affairs but the, my, my metier as a writer really is these kind of more long-form pieces. And that, you know, on the heels of writing the Che book, when I, you know, fortuitously was asked to write a piece for The New Yorker and it led to this staff writing job that I've had for the past 25 years, I've been able to indulge myself, in, in, at least in terms of what I'm maybe only capable of in, in the writing endeavor, which is to write long to have a patient editor, series of editors, to be able to try to, you know, wind history into the present, which has always been an impulse of mine, to understand it better myself, and to continue exploring the world, both the world I've traveled before, and maybe not understood as well as I wanted to, but now I can go back, or parts of the world I've never been in, but have felt a longstanding fascination for. And so, you know, journalism has functioned for me as the tool through which, one, I can be where history is being made, which has always, as I say, been a, the way I want to live my life. Two, to be creative and to write, uh, to find some outlet 
for and to work with words in expressing myself. And three, to continue to explore the world, to feel challenged and excited about the world that is out there. And so I think if I had been assigned to places, moved around, however powerful the position would have been, I think I would have been unhappy. And, you know, it's even now, it's a negotiated experience, but I think at least where I am, they kind of know me and they understand that there's certain times I need to do something that's off stage center right. I mean, there are times when I've dutifully been assigned and covered stories that, but I had to have, there had to be something about it that interested me. Major events have a way of making you smell the coffee and focusing, and, and I've been able to do that. But it's also important for me to occasionally go off and write about issues that simply aren't on the the front pages because they involve issues that I I feel strongly about or have some kind of intuition uh, for. Mm-hmm. That all makes sense. And uh, I wanted to ask about, you know, uh, if you look at your New Yorker back catalog, I see, you know, it, to the untrained eye, it looks like you switch between Latin America, Middle East slash Central Asia, Latin America, Middle East slash Central Asia, probably skewing a little bit more towards Latin America. But um, presumably this, the connection I see now is this, these, this coverage of gorillas you did, you must have done work in the Middle East. And that's how this started, um, or at least Afghanistan. Um, yeah. In those books that I did, first with my brother and then on my own with guerrillas, you know, I was speaking of, you know, insurgents, guerrillas, militants, you know, I, I, I spent time with armed people in Gaza and Palestine, in Afghanistan, in the Western Sahara, in, in further in Asia, in Burma and Myanmar, and, um, a few other places. So the, so I had roved east, you know. I had roved east, and I had also, uh, although I haven't ever written about it for a documentary, I had early Bosnia and um, Africa, Uganda, right after Museveni's power, Sudan, and so on. And so these places represented my early outreach to the wider world of conflict and insurgency that I was trying to make sense of at the time. I was trying to learn about the world through the experiences I'd already had and a sense of the world as a place where politics and even legitimate political systems grow and grew out of bloodshed. And I was fascinated by the processes of mythification that prevails after victory or the kind of cultures that accrue when an insurgency becomes chronic or endemic and how new societies form as a result of it. And this all itself grew out of a kind of skepticism towards the established order and the idea that the established, accepted political map of the world was not the only one, that there were many other imaginary landscapes (laughs) and nationhoods that were just waiting, simmering, brewing, exploding all around us. And I think subsequent events have borne out that idea um, as a, well, certainly an instinct of mine. And so for The New Yorker, 
it's funny, I, I, I began, prior to 9-11, I actually had a kind of mental map of what I wanted to do. And I was, I began with a piece on Cuba. Just, uh, just out of curiosity, how, how did you end up working at The New Yorker? I think, as I recall it, I had just done the Che book. I had done one piece for The New York Times magazine about a killing in northern Mexico. Um, my publisher, I think, was probably at a party in New York with then-editor Tina Brown, and she, was, she mentioned she was planning a Cuba issue, a special Cuba issue, and my editor said, oh, you should talk with John Lee. He's just lived in Cuba. Anyway, I got a call from an editor. I think he went further, and I think he knew that I'd kept a diary that I'd never published, or, and they asked me if I would contribute to that issue with excerpts from my diary and assigned an editor to work with me to do that, and I did. They liked it and asked me if I would contribute to a European issue they were planning, and would I write a profile of King Juan Carlos, to which I remember saying to the editor, you want me to write about a king? I only know about gorillas. <laughs> and it was, but I agreed to do it. It was a political profile, so it, was, it turned out to be quite fascinating. But actually, at the time, I was already thinking about Pinochet, who had recently stepped down from his military command, but retained power in the country. And so at the same moment as I, as I balked about the king, I let them know I had this idea about Pinochet. And they said, okay, but do the king first. So <laughs> I did. And, I, and then I went on to do this profile of General Pinochet. And again, the first sort of offbeat Another story in that also that first year was a profile of Charles Taylor, the then bloody dictator. Well, he had been elected, but after a brutal civil war, he had started Charles Taylor of Liberia and where I had lived as a boy. So again, in the course of that year, one of my contacts had approached me and suggested this possibility of getting to know Taylor. And so in that first year, I did these four stories and at the end of that year, David Remnick took over and they offered me a staff writer job and I went on from there. And in the, the next years that followed, I did a number of stories that, if you look at them, show me marching east. <laughs> it was this kind of inexorable urge to re-explore the world I had lived and grown up in or ventured through but not made entirely sense out of and I and it was time to go there so you know I have a story from Angola a story in Iraq a story well there's a there's a number but I guess the furthest east I got was Iraq but my plan was to go to Afghanistan I was interested in a story in Cambodia and so on and 9-11 came along before I could get to Afghanistan but on that day I proposed that I go to Afghanistan where I'd been before, which I think was sort of an unknown fact to the New Yorker at the time. But I had convinced them to let me go back to Sri Lanka. In fact, I had a ticket to fly to Sri Lanka and was going to go back to make sense of what had become this butchery of a civil war at the time. Mm -hmm. But where I had been with my brother, I guess, 12 years prior at the beginning of that civil war. So I was going to go back to Sri Lanka because I had noted over the previous, say, two years, that pretty much everyone we had interviewed back in 1983, this is now 2001, had been killed violently, almost everyone. 
So the premise of my story was to go to a country where I had known people, where I had interviews and experiences with them, where, but where everyone was dead. The idea of a country haunted only by ghosts as a way to kind of, as really a conceit, but a valid one to, to kind of look at the conflict. And, but then 9-11 happened and I you know, quickly realized that it was bin Laden, that we would go to war in Afghanistan. I proposed I go there. And that's really what took me with a big lurch right back to Central Asia and then on to Iraq again and where I spent more than half of each year for the next five or six years in either Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, documenting the wars as they evolved there. And then towards the late 2000s, Iraq particularly became very difficult to work in and I felt an urge to kind of again, after almost complete absorption in those two conflicts, uh, felt a need to reconnect with the wider world that for me is always out there. And so I first returned to Afghanistan, where I hadn't been for a couple of years, and then beyond to other countries, including back to Latin America, Venezuela, where I'd been before, to Cuba, to places in Africa, and found myself pulled back periodically to Afghanistan until about 2010. But I felt a strong urge, uh, especially after returning to Cuban Venezuela. It was a very interesting kind of phenomenon taking place in Latin America with this with so-called pink tide, a kind of revolution 2.0, you know, mentored by Fidel and paid for by Chavez uh, taking place in Latin America. And it, I felt myself quite drawn back to Latin America. And then that process in turn was truncated by the Arab Spring, which drew me back to Libya, to that war which I covered on to Syria, the beginning of which I covered. And then mostly again back to Latin America again uh, for the past five or six or seven years, with some exceptions, with quite a few stories in Africa, which has always been a place I love to go to and I'm fascinated by. And most recently by a return to Afghanistan because of the Taliban takeover, I just simply couldn't not go. I had to go. Um, it's a place I've gone to, gosh, since my, you know, since I was in my late twenties. And so, or I guess I was 30. So I had to go there and do that. And I think as I stand now, you know, it's the whole world I look at and I'm interested in. There are some outliers that I would love to go and chronicle, places I still feel I would like to explore, a few places where I've been before that I would like to make more sense out of or where I'm drawn, a few I feel very compelled by continuing to document closely. And there you are. I mean, I no longer feel, I guess, the, the need to feverishly cover at the exclusion of all else a single process or a single conflict uh, I definitely did feel that in Afghanistan, I definitely did feel that in Iraq and more broadly I guess I feel that about places like about of wanting to remain close and to chronicle their evolution of countries like Cuba, Brazil uh, and I, I guess a handful of others, but and I think it has to do with uh, the way those societies 
remain very much putty in the hands of their rulers or how they have been shaped by history. And that, you know, there's a handful of countries that fascinate me because you really cannot guess what their future will bring. By and large, until recently, you could say that most Western European countries, I guess until the Trump era, you could pretty much say, we kind of know what, how this is going to go. And, you know, it may be fascinating to some people, but it really isn't to me to know that, you know, Belgium is going to have an election in 16 months and there will be a new prime minister and then there will be another. You know, it's not, that's not me. Or the vagaries of the European Union headquarters in Brussels or whatever it is. But I am fascinated by countries that have been shaped by dramatic history and remain dangling in the wind with their futures entirely up for grabs. And by the way, that affects those societies. And so I've always, you know, going back to the whole idea of what drew me into writing about guerrillas and then revolutionaries and Che and so on, I remain interested by this idea of how legality, how political legalities are formed or are rent asunder and how how we mythify violence and sacralize it in order to create new legitimacies and how perceptions change over time about that and how much denial plays a part in even modern politics. Deterministic denialism. I mean, last year, Vladimir Putin, we all knew he was a villain, but you didn't really talk about it because he was somehow part of the firmament, right? He was still invited to the various international forums and everybody made an effort to smile in his presence and pretend that they didn't know that he was a poisoner and a murderer and a, you know. And now he's a monster. But we knew that then. <laughs> so, right. again, I'm, I, as a student of international affairs, I'm fascinated by the way these things work and the ability to continue to document it, really, as a way of, of, of I guess, understanding our world better and knowing ourselves better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of follow-ups I could make to that, but I, I, maybe now is a good time because, you know, this is so uh, sprawling in so many directions we could go and to, to focus on a specific story. If you could just pick a story from any time in your career and kind of tell us about how you went about doing it and the story behind the story. What what comes to mind for you? I mean, I, I went back and read your 2008 piece where you go on uh, Chavez's airplane with him all over. Oh, yeah. And that's quite an amazing like <laughs> Yes, a good, that's a good pick. Okay, great. Yeah, I was thinking of the last year or so. and Yeah, I'd be coming, happy to but... hear about how you... Hold that whole thing off, um, if if you wouldn't mind telling us. Sure. Well, I have to quickly go back to two thousand one when I went to Venezuela to do a profile of then the very charismatic Hugo Chavez, who had become president, was beginning to kind of, in his mind, revolutionize it a year and a half before. I had seen him in Cuba with Fidel and noted this kind of rapture he felt in Fidel's presence. It was to become this almost father-son relationship over the coming years. At any rate, I went to Venezuela and I spent a couple of months in and around Chavez's um, 
circle and with him on trips to the jungle and flying trips and here and there. And, you know, he was a real character. And the first time we met, he had me come to the presidential palace at night and we sat under a tree and, and he told me all kinds of things. He was a very unusual guy. I, I reading it, I was almost like, did he already know Chavez? Because I did wonder how you got that access. So I got the access with Chavez in 2001 because, as it turned out, as I discovered sitting under the tree with him, he was a devotee of Che Guevara. So, you know, in those days, my Che Guevara biography, which had come out, say, three years before in, in, you know, in Spanish and other languages, had circulated, and he wanted to know a lot more about Che. It, at some level, he so admired Che that he wished to be compared to him, I think. And not only that, when Chavez had been in prison for his attempted coup back in the 1992 to 1994, as I recall. No, it was 1990. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was in the middle of the 90s. He had been in prison for two years. I had been involved in the search for Che's body. I'd written about it for the New York Times. A general had broken silence and told me where Che's body was buried. It had started this two-year, essentially, search for the body in, in and around a Bolivian town. And in the end, his body was discovered where the general had told me. And it was a very dramatic episode that Latin Americans certainly followed blow by blow, and they were fascinated. So as it turned out, Chavez had been in prison and had followed everything to do with this search. And he seemed to have a photographic memory because that night, I'll never forget, he was asking me, he said, so when you talked to the general, he told you this, but then you had a press conference and said that. And what happened there? And, you know, he knew the names of former guerrillas and people there and people he knew I had been in contact with. It had been very documented in the Latin American press. And he was up on all of the details, but there were lagoons. There were... So it was clear that I was with an, a fairly unusual character here, Right. And he liked me and uh, was an inter you know, he was like a kind of force of nature. So I wrote my piece about him. I left, you know, and it came out the week of 9-11. So you know, over time, people saw it in the States, but they definitely read it in Venezuela. I was in Afghanistan when there was a coup attempt against him. Actually, the coup was successful. He was held for two days, but by a series of incidents, returned to power. In 2003, when I returned home to England, I found that there were something like 38 messages from his presidential palace on my answer phone <laughs> the night of the coup. Uh, it wasn't him, but it was his people calling me to alert me to what had happened. I didn't actually make it back to Venezuela until 2005. I saw him. It was the week he had declared that he was a socialist, and he started seizing private plantations. I then returned in 2008 at a time when he was, he threatened to go to war with neighboring Colombia over an incident. And we had an interview, which by now he was very much feeling his power. And at first I was very disappointed because it wasn't one of these under a tree at night, just the two of us conversations, but in a room with, you know, all kinds of officials there and they were filming it, which is something autocrats have begun doing, you know, to kind of, I always feel to intimidate you a little bit. And it was one of those sorts of interviews. And I have to say, I was feeling very out of place and, and disappointed that he had... And he, he, he seemed to be speaking at me, not to me, you know. So, but when the cameras went off, he pulled me aside and stood very close to me. He was a very physical guy. And he put a hand on your shoulder, pull you right to him. 
And he said, I'm going to go to the Dominican Republic. And, you know, he was going to call what they call the Group of Rio, which is this regional, it's a kind of a regional conference that uh, Latin American nations belong to. And they can periodically convene to discuss hemispheric issues. So there had been this blow up with him and the neighboring right-wing president of Colombia. He'd sent tanks to the border. This was all happening as a backdrop to our interview. And he pulled me to him and he said, I've convened the group of Rio. I'm going to go to the Dominican Republic to confront Uribe. You want to come with me? <laughs> and I said, sure. He said, it's great. I'll make you a member of the delegation. <laughs> and so he did. He, well, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't really part of the delegation, but he, uh, like within a day, I was on his jet, a newly acquired jet he was very proud of, with uh, all of his characters, his followers, his, you know, aides and so on. Some Cuban doctors he pointed out to me. He, they always traveled with him. And he took me with him to the Dominican Republic. And he sat me right behind him at this big round table where all of the, well, those who could attend, there were at least 15, as I recall, Latin American presidents were also there. They all flew in for this, including Odibe. And this day-long drama ensued in which dirty laundry was aired and accusations flew back and forth. Daniel Ortega tried to beat up Uribe and was held back and, you know, all this stuff. And Chavez himself finally, you know, he played the statesman all day long. And by the end of the day, he had grabbed Uribe in a bear hug and it was all over. And at the end of that day, he turned to us all and said, let's go to Cuba. I want to say hi to Raul, you know. And so we did <laughs> and flew on to Cuba and Raul was on the airstrip and Chavez introduced me to him. He had just become president, having taken over from his ailing brother. We spent 24 hours in Cuba and then flew back. But it was extraordinary. And what was the funny sort of side story to this was that friends of mine from around the region, I began receiving this barrage of emails because, of course, they were all transfixed by this high drama, you know, between these two enemy powers, uh, Chavez and his Bolivarian revolution and you know, the U.S.-backed Uribe, who, who is about as right-wing as you can get, and their near-war situation that Chavez had sort of both escalated and now let's go on low simmer, and all for his own purposes, really. And, they, and when they had watched the television coverage of this event, who did they see sitting right behind Chavez but me? And, you know, were scratching their heads as to how this happened. Um, <laughs> and so that was the kind of backstory to that. And it allowed me to nonetheless tell the story of Chavez at the apogee of his powers and also sort of notional wealth. The oil prices since the early 2000s had soared and they were something around $120, $150 a barrel, the highest they'd ever been. So he had been the recipient of a trillion dollars, a kind of bonanza of funds had flowed into his government's treasury to a degree and an amount that had never reached Latin America before. You know, he had dispen you know, he had subsidized other regimes, sent missions off to around the world. He would pontificate it at the UN and uh, here and there and recommended books to Obama in international forums and was really at the absolute apogee of his powers, his friendship with Fidel, his revolutionary discourse. And that was what I was able to document from a very first-hand perspective, vantage point. And with this kind of banter I had with Chavez himself, you know, 
And it made for unusual, I guess, an unusual piece. There were plenty of people who didn't like it, actually, because they felt it showed him in two... I mean, of course, by then Chavez had, you know, polarized his country, you know, was beginning to move against, you know, members of the press. He called his opposition esqualidos, you know, the squalid ones. He had, like Che before with gusanos, worms for his opposition. You know, he was very polarizing. And I think, you know, they would have wished I had written from a more critical perspective or taken their point of view. But, you know, there's a trade-off when you have uh, such access to somebody. And I was of the view that Chavez's flaws, which actually were always parts of my stories, even the first one, which he nonetheless overlooked and, you know, allowed me back in, that the best way to show this person's true nature and the way it was going was through that access. On that same trip, as I recall, and in that piece, I had an interesting encounter with his, I think it was his defense or interior minister, who was clearly involved in attempts to undermine Colombia through one of the guerrilla groups. So that was the subtext of this whole piece and this whole period. And that was what Chavez was trying to kind of obfuscate around. And I think that comes across clearly in the piece as well. So I wouldn't have been able to report it in the way I did if I hadn't had that sort of access. Uh, but it was one of the more f- kind of idiosyncratic and flamboyant kind of crazy experiences I had in these years working for The New Yorker. And, and, and I have to say, lots of fun too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess then we'll move on to the quicker questions, which I call the lightning round. Do you feel ready? Are you? Yep. So the first question, is there any publication that you read to keep up on the regions you follow that you think is particularly good and and doesn't get enough credit? It can be in any language if it's in Spanish or Portuguese or anything. You know, to be honest, it's kind of a mixed bag there are some very good reporters working in certain countries, and therefore I read them. You know, an AP guy out of Miami, Josh Goodman, covers Venezuela very, very well, Colombia too. There is the AP guy in Cuba who manages to cut through the official guff. And there was a woman before. They do a pretty good job, Reuters as well. Reuters and AP, I would say the same is true in Brazil. And then Folha, the main paper there, has... A, Again, it depends on what you're interested in. If it's economic news, The Economist has a good person in Brazil, um, Sarah Maslin. In El Salvador, El Faro uh, is a digital magazine where there's a group of young journalists who are very good at covering the gangland and, and also Bukele's slide towards autocracy. There are no journalists now in Nicaragua, but a handful that have had to flee and are living in Mexico and write for El País, Wilfredo Miranda is one that comes to mind. You know, it's like this, actually. When you're talking about a region, it's becoming a very atomized landscape with either smallish web publications, few magazines, a few big names who manage to circulate and write in various forums, El País is probably one of the best, especially out of its Mexico City office, and then also its Bogota Andean office. 
the uh, journals to, that covers Latin America extremely well. They have a, a slew of young and very bright and active journalists operating through the region, some people who know certain countries and themes really, really well. They've put a lot of effort into making it a more autonomous publication than it was. So it's no longer as tied to Madrid-based diktats as it used to be. I would say for Latin America, El País, The Economist, and then I would have to find a handful of names. AP in certain places, Reuters in certain places, you know, extremely uh, good, good, you know, sound reporting, uh, reliable reporting. Yeah, amongst the wires, I would say Reuters, AP, magazines, The Economist, consistency, although, you know, it's, it can be idiosyncratic. Um, I'm not as impressed by the Times' coverage. Uh, it's, it's begun to pick up, I think, in Mexico. I guess I read the Post a bit less on Latin America, but it, occasionally there are some very good stories. There's a, Mary Beth Sheridan, for instance, is a, a name that comes to mind as someone who really, really, really knows Mexico. For the Wall Street Journal, Jose de Cordoba is an old hand and a good writer. He covers very specific things, but he's a, uh, someone to read. You know, it's like that. It's a kind of a mixed bag. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. I mean... Just I one last name, sure. actually. Just one last name. And for the Post, it's Nick Miroff on the border. Uh, the whole issues, everything related to kind of ICE, DHS, and the border. He's very good. Anyway, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, those are all good names. And then that feeds into the next question, which is, what's the best journalistic article piece? It can be whatever medium you've consumed recently, but if you had to choose one, what would it be? Well, I was really pleasantly surprised and gratified to see the big online rollout about reparations uh, the reparations issue in Haiti by the New York Times about several weeks ago. I felt, you know, they put a whole team to look at how Haiti had been, as a freed slave republic, been then subjected by France to isolation and onerous taxes for over a century, which led to its miseries today, many of its miseries today. I felt that it was an interesting concept the way they did it, I would say there were some flaws in it, their approach and their assumption that nobody had ever heard of it before. Everybody I know that knows Haiti knows about this. That same thing was a subject of conversation between me and then-President Martelly, for instance. But even so, it was good to see. It was really good to see that they had decided to put resources into something like that. And I think it got a lot of people talking and a lot of tongues wagging, and that's always a good thing in journalism. And then... okay. Uh, the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? <laughs> Gosh, I wouldn't. I've lived my own life. I've lived it to the hilt and the way I've wanted to live it. There's past journalists that I admire. But some of them are not so much journalists as writers. They wrote journalism. They wrote fiction and I admired them for that breadth of approach and creativity, but I wouldn't really trade my life with them. I mean, I have people I admire, and I mentioned Graham Greene before, I admired his 
view on the world. I admired Naipaul, but I found him an odious person. Kapuscinski was an interesting man who wrote in a way about the world that I know, and I, I found his prose extraordinary, but he had problems with the truth. That doesn't take away my admiration for his books, which I see as their own thing, a kind of faction in a way. Paul Theroux is a man I've read since I was an adolescent. I recently came to get to know him personally. I find him a fascinating man who writes a book a year and, again, a very interesting, idiosyncratic, sometimes dark-humored take on the world that resonates with me, not all, but much of his nonfiction, uh, sometimes overlooked because it's pitched as travel literature. I'm sure I'm missing out a few here, but, again... I'm very happy with the life I've lived. It's not a, not a life... When I was young, I would have probably said Hemingway. You know, a man of action as well as letters. That's always been something that's attracted me. I always felt a little disappointed in the writers that I admired who had lived desk-bound lives. Those that had managed to also live big lives or lives on the edge and write were the ones I tended to be more attracted to. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that may, that makes sense. I mean, you've had quite the career. I mean, I try to push people into if you had to, because I realize some would not. And sorry, I I, I missed out on mentioning Conrad, of course, because he's a previous generation. Again, a strange man in some ways, but clearly informed the world that I later, along with those intervening writers, I think, looked at the world. Being a person from the so-called first world, nonetheless looked at it from its margins around its tropical, around its tropic of Capricorn, you know what I mean? And and that's the world that I know and have come to see, always looking back at the center from the side. And so he was hugely formative as well. Sure. And then the next question is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I think most people don't know that I was once a prison guard um, oh, wow. <laughs> and that I also cut tobacco as a laborer. But these were things I did in my youth. But they were part of a period in which I spent a lot of my growing up years seeking out experience. Um, I used to have a kind of an ever-changing list of experiences that I felt I needed to undergo in order to complete my education, my personal education, and it included things like, you know, be a coal miner, row across the Atlantic from east to west, or <laughs> walk across the Sahara, you know, be in prison, etc. And so I tended to leap at any opportunity that gave me a chance to leave my social standing or my own baggage and uh, live and work alongside people in very different circumstances in realms that weren't necessarily attractive, but I thought that would be really formative. And so I did them. Yeah. yeah. I also worked as a laborer once for eight months, earning a dollar a day in Honduras as a machetero. Wow. So, yeah. Eight months. And I learned, I learned my best Spanish then. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Wow. And then I guess just to follow that up quickly, uh, I like to ask what is 
the coolest, weirdest, strangest situation your job has gotten you in. I like to call it a pinch me, I can't believe this is my life moment. I got to meet President Obama in the Oval Office. That was a bit of a thrill. Oh, wow. We talked, and that was interesting because he was such a one-off character. He, it was just the two of us, and we talked about common themes. We talked about revolution, about Che, Fidel, Cuba, and I was able to hear the way his mind works. And, you know, he even kind of evinced a certain youthful radicalism that, of course, sitting there in the presidential seat, he needs to kind of explain away a little bit. It was, you know, within a presidential kind of gloss, but nonetheless, glimpses of this man with this extraordinary power, you know, in a refined setting. That was interesting. I thought, wow, it'd be interesting to be with him, shirt sleeves rolled up, drinking a beer and hearing a little bit more outside of the Oval Office. That was pretty thrilling. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that situation before you do it like being in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, ego stroke here. I mean, first thing he told me was that he'd read my Che book, and I had no no idea of that. No idea. I'd never known that. And that was a thrill because it's a big book and a bit of a slog, and so I was quite thrilled to know that he'd... uh, read it yeah so, wow so so that was that kind of set off the discussion in a way you know what i mean mm-hmm. either he was just um setting me up or <laughs> uh, yeah no i bet uh, i imagine he did read it that's yeah that's quite a thing to have a president read your book and then just the last two questions first is what is your favorite film book tv or other media property about journalists and why Gosh, you know, um, well, as you spoke, I the Apocalypse Now came to mind. And although it's not obviously about journalism, of course, there is the figure of the photojournalist played by Dennis Hopper, the very drugged up Dennis Hopper, who plays this zany, amoral character hanging around Kurtz in his Temple of Doom, you know, in the jungle. And I guess that figure is someone who is recognizable to me. The whole story, of course, is fascinating. You know, it's uh, inspired by Heart of Darkness and Brando is played by Kurtz and these various other figures. It's formally a, a journey into a kind of moral hell, which is, of course, what war is. And um, Dennis Hopper, you find him at the end of this journey. He's uh, not the main character, but he's this kind of Hopalong Cassidy character who's hanging around and explaining to the guy who arrives why there are these decapitated heads everywhere and interprets the mood of the monster in the temple who is Kurtz, the man who's lost his mind. And in a way, isn't that the ultimate take, cynical take, on what some journalists do? They become fools for the court. They become the step and fetch it. The the, well, the fool is the better term mm-hmm. for the figure of power, the explainer of the man and his moods and revel in the fact that they are protected because they're with him and can entertain him. Really, he's, he's the fool character, isn't he? He's Lear's fool. 
And so he does it so well. And I have seen so many people in and out of journalism who have fallen into that role. And I think it's one of the great pitfalls of journalism is to become a palace courtesan. Um, and, and, the, and that trade-off, that moral trade-off so many people make through their proximity to power. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that. Yeah, that's interesting. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, and I mean really put qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? First thought that came to mind was war planner, but I'm also <laughs> conservationist. And I, I, I would say the two, why, or commander of some battlefield, because I came to see the mistakes that were made by the strategists and planners of the wars America blundered into over the past 20 years. And in some cases, many, 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 many lives were lost as a result of that. And, and not, not chiefly American lives, but in, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives in other countries through blunders, blunders of vision, blunders of perception that led to kind of amateur hour on the battlefield. And I never expected myself to think like a military man, but I, I, I guess I lived so long and out there in the field that I, I realized I did think like one. And I could see, I felt at times that if a different decision had been made, one that I could see, that uh, things would have gone better. So although it's an unusual thing to say, and, um, <laughs> and I know that it might shock people because even some people might recoil at the very idea of being a war planner. My sense is that once you're in it, you have to prevail. You have to do it right. And as morally questionable as it is, having gotten yourself into that position, again, you have to assume some moral damage yourself in order to prevail and to make ensure that more lives are not lost as a result of your conceits, your failings, and so on. So I came to view, especially in the Middle East, some of the battlefields and the wars taking place in that way. And um, I still do. It's a funny thing. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And the other, and this is more lifelong, is um, I would have been a naturalist. I would have been a... Uh, you know, explorer and naturalist, especially if I'd been born at a different time. But, you know, I've had a lifelong, really, a love of an enduring, yeah, love of uh, the, will, the wild world, the original world with its inhabitants, animal and human, and in their histories and the painful agonies that we've subjected them to, especially in my lifetime, you know, with the huge surge in population growth, the heedless technology and consumer-led societies, the suburban sprawl, the, you know, everything that we know that is, is spoiling the world we live in. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would love to have had a more direct hand in and role in that. And to, to the extent that I've been able, I've tried to kind of begun to include some of that in my reporting where possible in the last few years. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, there you have it. Yeah. Naturalist, conservationist, and war planner. <laughs> <laughs> Taking advantage or, of the qualifications yeah. aside, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Well, uh, that is the last question. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, John Lee. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for the invitation. Pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with John Lee Anderson, an author and staff writer at The New Yorker. I'll post links to some of the things John Lee talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for a special bonus episode to be posted this Monday, July 4th, and the next full episode to be posted on Sunday, August 7th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.